At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. That song invites us to come and consider tonight what it is that we really celebrate. Why do we make such a big deal about this day and this holiday? You know, as I was thinking about it a little bit and just, you know, Christmas contains a lot, doesn't it? I'm sure many of you felt that. Preparation and parties and festivities and family and and all sorts of things that we do around this holiday. But sometimes I wrestle with the question, I don't know if you ever do as well, does Christmas really matter? Like, it's a nice holiday, it's fun, it's nice to have a break from work, but, but does it really matter? Like, matter for your life, matter for the world? I think probably for most people, we would probably say sometimes we feel like, does it? Or is it just maybe some nice spiritual moments amidst a busy month, maybe a good break from work, maybe a chance for a reset? But does Christmas matter to like the problems that we face in our world, to the things our hearts ache with and ache for? Does it matter? The invitation tonight is to step into a moment to consider with me, if you would, why Christmas matters. Because I think it does. And I think it matters not just for your life. I think it actually matters for our entire world. And I want just for a few minutes to help you see why I think that's the case. And so to do that, we're going to look at some scripture together. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to open it with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, if you're new or visiting with us, there should be one below the seat in front of you. Feel free to pull that out. Or if you've got a device, feel free to follow along that way. I'm actually going to begin us in Matthew chapter 2 but then we're going to end up in Isaiah 11. So I kind of want you anchored there for a moment. Throughout this holiday season, we in in Advent season, we've been actually as a church studying through the first two chapters of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus's earliest disciples, and he wrote an account of Jesus's life and what he came to do. And he begins in the first two chapters of his account, relaying the events of Jesus's birth. And infancy. And as he does that, Matthew continues to connect the story of Jesus back to ancient prophecies that were made to Israel hundreds of years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And he keeps saying that Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. Tonight, I want to look for a moment at one of those verses, kind of the key or ultimate verse that Matthew gives. It's kind of the summary of everything that he's been trying to say in the first two chapters as he recounts the story of Jesus's birth. It's in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. Just to set the context a little bit, Jesus is born. 
As soon as Jesus is born, some Persian astrologers show up in the city of Jerusalem. They come to the ruler of the area, a guy named Herod, and they say, hey, we heard a king's been born in Bethlehem. Herod sends them to find him, essentially saying, oh, if you find him, tell me so I can worship him. He doesn't want to worship him. He actually wants to kill him. So Jesus and his family escape to Egypt. Matthew recounts, though, that eventually Herod dies, and so Jesus and his family make their way back home. But unfortunately, they can't return to their home. They return to an area just north of the city of Jerusalem called Galilee. And then Matthew, as he kind of sums up Jesus' life, gives this kind of concluding verse that I want to look at for a moment. I'll put it on the screen for you, Matthew 2.23. It says this, And he, Jesus, went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, one of the things you note about this verse is that it's kind of Matthew's summary of what he's been saying. In the very next verse, Matthew's going to fast forward suddenly to Jesus's adulthood and his ministry. And so in many ways, this verse is kind of his summary of the infancy account that he gives of Jesus. And so it's an important verse. And it's important for another reason. Matthew does something in this verse to signify who Jesus is and why he thinks Jesus is such a big deal. Note what he says. Jesus goes and lives in the city called Nazareth, and then Matthew wants to draw a connection in your mind to why that's important. He says that that was what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. So Matthew, once again, is going back into ancient Jewish literature, connecting promises and prophecies that were said to the story of Jesus. But what's unique about this one is that Matthew doesn't actually cite in this a specific prophet. Everything up until this point, Matthew has been citing a specific prophet. Like he said, the prophet Isaiah would said, Behold, a virgin will conceive, and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. He cited the prophet Micah when he said that a king would be born in Bethlehem. He cited the prophet Hosea when God said, Out of Egypt, I'll call my son. And he cited the prophet Jeremiah in the voice heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. But here, he doesn't quote a specific prophet, He says this is to fulfill what the prophets said. So Matthew's actually giving a summary of the prophets. But the thing is, when you go back into the prophets and read them, which I would encourage, or maybe I'm just nerdy enough to do it, what you find is that there aren't actually a lot of prophecies that are directly related to the idea of the Messiah or the promised one of God being called a Nazarene. It doesn't immediately jump off the page, but that's actually because there's a deeper understanding that Matthew's trying to point towards in this. In order to understand what Matthew's saying here, you kind of have to put on the lens of an ancient Jew. We read the Bible in English. That's how we see the text, but Matthew originally wrote for Jews in his day in the first century. And as he unfurls this prophecy, this summary of the prophets, Matthew uses a very common technique in his day for interpreting the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. It's called midrashing. Midrashing was a Jewish form of interpretation where you would pull together themes, idea, words, letters, all sorts of different things that we see in the text to be considered in kind of deriving an interpretation. And what Matthew does here is a midrash. He pulls together several themes in the Old Testament into a word to specifically help draw a connection to his audience of who he thinks Jesus is. 
There's two kind of key themes that he wants to point us towards in stating that Jesus fulfills the prophet's promise of being a Nazarene. The first thing that he wants to point towards is that Jesus is the one that God promised to send, but who would be ultimately rejected by God's people. Nazareth, or being a Nazarene, was not seen as a positive thing in Jesus' day. Nazareth was kind of the backwards, nowhere place. In fact, if you read John's gospel, there's a point where they talk about Jesus, and one of Jesus' earliest disciples notes that he's from Nazareth and says, does anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, it's kind of that place, like the place you don't want to be from, the place you don't really want to have a reputation of being found. But Matthew highlights that Jesus is from this place. Why? Well, because God, in his prophecies about this promised Messiah and Savior that he would send, had said that that was exactly where that person was going to be come from, and that he was going to be someone who was despised and rejected and looked down upon. Prophecies like Isaiah 53 says, for he, Jesus, grew up before him like a, or for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Matthew's trying to help you see that even from Jesus' birth, he's despised, he rejected. He's actually fulfilling these prophecies. But there's a second theme that he's highlighting in this statement. You see, the word Nazarene sounds very similar to the Hebrew word nazer. And the Hebrew word nazer means branch. And if you go back into the ancient Jewish prophecies, what you begin to see is they actually have a lot to say about a branch and how it's connected to the promises God was making to his people. For instance, the prophet Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. Or the prophet Zechariah writes, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. But probably the clearest and most prolific prophecy came from Isaiah. It would have been the one that would have immediately jumped into the minds of Matthew's audience as they drew the connection between Jesus being a Nazarene and being Nazar, the branch. Isaiah 11 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This was an ancient prophecy by Isaiah that God was going to send a king. Jesse was the father of King David, the most prolific king in Israel's history. The one who led Israel when it was at its height and when it was at its best. And God had promised that out of that lineage, he was going to send another king like David, who was going to come and reestablish God's kingdom once again, the fruit of God's kingdom in the world. And so as Matthew draws his story of Jesus' infancy to the close, he highlights and brings this to the forefront of his audience. He wants them to see that Jesus is the one the prophets prophesied about. What Matthew's trying to shout with an exclamation point in this sentence is that Jesus is the promised king. That God had promised a king to bring his kingdom to deal with the effects and problems of our world, and that Jesus is that promised one. And it's that truth, it's that reality for why Christmas matters so much. How many of you 
Over the past year, or maybe few years, or maybe decades, have had a moment where you've looked at the world and thought, man, what we really need is a good leader. Like, can we just find anyone besides these bozos to run this place? Like, I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, American, not American, where you're from. I mean, you look at the state of the world and you're like, can we find anyone who can actually help us move this thing forward? Right? We all have this desire for the world to be a good place, right? We, we want it to be a place that flourishes, where there's equity and justice and resources and freedom for everybody. We desire peace and harmony, but it seems like we can never get there. And it seems like we can never find the right people to lead us there. If anything, it feels like most of the time they're leading in the opposite direction. And we're crying out, can we find anyone who can actually help us pursue what this world is meant to be? But the problem is, even as we feel that at times, we look to ourselves and we realize that we don't really measure up to the task either. I mean, sometimes we like to think we do, but I'll be honest, when I look at myself, I don't know if I have the right ideas. I don't know if I could lead to help our world flourish. I can barely lead my own life at times, let alone try to lead a whole mass of people into flourishing and justice and equity and righteousness. And yet our hearts cry out for a qualified leader. We want a flourishing world. We want lives of harmony and joy and peace and love but who can actually help us get there? You see, what we need is a good king. And what Matthew wants you to see is that Jesus is, in fact, that good and promised king. And to help you see that, just for a moment, we need to go back into that ancient prophecy from Isaiah and see the rest of the passage because it highlights the sort of king that Jesus is why he's qualified to lead, and the sort of kingdom that he's bringing. So let's look just for a moment at Isaiah 11, and I want to show you two things from it that point to the truth of how Jesus is the promised king. It begins again, there shall come forth, Isaiah 11:1. 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Matthew begins by expounding upon the righteous rule of this king, and he wants you to see that he's qualified to be the sort of leader that the world needs. Notice that this king has the spirit of the Lord upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord gives this king the very resources that he needs to lead the world into the flourishing that it longs for. The Spirit gives him wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is to know how to live in God's world, God's ways, and understanding is the way in which we actually apply that and direct that into our lives. This king will have both. He will have counsel and power 
Military terms to reference strategy and strength, noting that this king will be able to devise the right course of action and actually apply it. The Spirit will give him knowledge to understand truth from falsehood, and he will operate out of the fear of the Lord, a worship before God Almighty. This king will reign with justice. He will not decide by what simply his eyes see or his ears hear, but he will see and perceive the hearts and what's underneath to operate out of true justice in the world. He will bring equity for the poor and righteousness for those under the boot of the world. He will bring judgment on the wicked and evil one to establish righteousness. This is the sort of reign that he brings Nelson Mandela, the great South African leader, once noted that a nation should not be judged by how it treats its highest citizens, but its lowest ones. And in the kingdom that this king reigns with, he reigns with justice for the lowest citizens, for the ones oppressed. Not only will he reign with justice, he'll have righteous character. It notes that righteousness and faithfulness will be what he straps around himself Which of us doesn't look to our leaders and say, I hope that they operate in righteousness. I hope they're good. I hope there's no skeletons in the closet. I hope they're not manipulating. What Isaiah wants to say is this king won't. This king will do what is right. He will be faithful. He will have the sort of character to lead well. And so Matthew, as he draws on Isaiah, even as he tells the story of Jesus, wants us to see that Jesus is the promised king. He's actually the only one qualified to lead and provide the sort of leadership that we need. But not only that, his leadership leads to the flourishing that we desire. As Isaiah unpacks the promise of this king, he not only provides his character, but then he begins to show what his reign produces Verse 6, he says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here, Isaiah provides for us the nature of this kingdom and what his kingdom will be characterized by and will accomplish. His kingdom brings peace among creation. Predator and prey now operate in harmony. No longer is strife and conflict and division what marks the world, but those that were at odds within our world are now brought together. In this kingdom, evil is destroyed. That ancient symbol of evil, the snake, has been such removed that now the child plays with it. No longer is there the threat, but innocence is restored to people and creation. In this kingdom, there is a universal knowledge of God, where his knowledge fills the earth that it was always intended to. In many ways, what's portrayed here is the restoration of how God originally designed things to be. When God created the world at the very beginning, he created the world to operate in harmony, a harmony between human beings and God, a harmony between human beings and one another, and a harmony between human beings and creation. 
Yet, because of the sinfulness and rebellion of human beings, the world has fallen into brokenness and division. And yet here, under the reign of this king, under his rule, his kingdom reverses that curse and begins to restore God's creation to its intention, where there's flourishing among all, where humanity is found in its rightful position and place under God and yet leading creation, and God's glory is saturating the earth. What's pictured here and is the essence of Jesus' kingdom is a world that's restored to its ideal and perfect state, a flourishing the world the way it should be, the way we long for it to be. And what Matthew points toward and Isaiah points towards is that Jesus is the only qualified king, not just to provide a temporary fix to the world, but actually restore it to the way it was always meant to be. Maybe you could think of what Jesus comes to do in his kingdom a little bit like this. In 2015, I made a terrible decision. In an overly aggressive act of softball playing, I tried to leg out a home run in the first inning, slid into the catcher, and snapped one of the major bones in my ankle. It was one of those, like, as soon as I stood up and felt the bone slipped, I knew something was wrong. So my wife came, we went to the hospital, several, two surgeries, lots of therapy later. Long story short, I'm walking, so obviously it's better. The doctor had to put a titanium rod and two screws into my leg that will permanently be there for the rest of my life. Now with lots of rehab, I can still play sports. I can still move. I still seem to get around okay. But here's the truth of my ankle. It hurts every day of my life. Every day. I feel the pain of it. I can't barely walk in bare feet because I still have pain in my foot from it. I have to constantly be aware of what I'm doing, where I'm playing, if I'm playing. I mean, just a few uh, months ago, I was just playing pickup basketball with my son in the driveway, took one step, my ankle gave out down on the ground. Like, I have to wear a brace. It's, it's terrible. And there's many days in my life with my ankle where I long for my ankle to be back to the way it was. Like to be back to the place where I don't have to worry about it or think about it, where I could do everything that I was able to do before on it. Because the doctor fixed it, but he didn't restore it. And there's a big difference there. You see, our world longs to be restored. And what we do, we, we recognize and feel the brokenness of our world constantly. We feel the pain of it in our own lives. We look out and see the strife and conflict and scarcity and issues. And we look for leader after leader, like I look for doctor after doctor to maybe fix the problem. Maybe this one's promises, this one's campaign, this dynamic person. Maybe they can provide what we actually need to make the world what we desire for it to be. But at the end of the day, all they are are temporary fixes. They're fleeting moments. Oh, that seems like it could be where we're let down again. And we feel the ache and we feel the pain because we know what our lives need and what our world needs is not a temporary fix. It doesn't need a steel rod. It needs the restoration to be brought back to the way it was intended to be. And what Isaiah's trying to point towards and Matthew's trying to connect for you is that that's what Jesus comes to bring. His kingdom 
And his reign is a restoration. It's bringing the world back to the way God always intended for it to be. And that's why Christmas matters. Because in Christmas, in this time where we remember a baby born 2,000 years ago, the announcement is that the king is here and that his rule and reign is beginning. And because he's here, that means God's kingdom is here. That's how Jesus begins his ministry, by saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand because he is the promised king. He's the leader we long for to lead us into the world that we long for. In him, the promises of God are fulfilled. And he's here to restore what was broken and lost. And the way he does it starts in being born in a manger, but ends on a cross where he pays for our sin, our brokenness, our rebellion. He takes it upon himself, paying the price that we deserved. But he doesn't stay dead. Three days later, he comes out of the tomb and announces that God's kingdom, his new world, is actually breaking out right in the midst of this one. And that nothing, not the enemy, not sin, not even death itself, can stop what God is bringing as he brings his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. You see, Christmas is about a remedy for the entire world. It's about the answer our hearts are aching for, found in the leader that we all are looking for. And the invitation of Christmas is that what your heart longs for, you can begin to experience right now. I love the way Isaiah ends his prophecy in this section. In verse 10, he says, In that day, the root of Jesse, right, that promised king, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations. See, what Matthew wants you to see is not only is the promised king here, but he's actually inviting you into his kingdom. That he now, by the good news that he is the king who has died for our sins and risen again, is inviting all people from everywhere, from every nation and all places to join in and be part of his flourishing kingdom and world. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is an invitation to trust that he is who he says he is, the promised king, and then to follow him with your life and experience the very kingdom of God right here, right now, as it leads you into the day when he will restore it fully in his return. The invitation of Christmas is to follow the king. It's an invitation to join his people, the church. That's what the church is, not a building, a people who are marked by the kingdom of God. It's not perfect. But it's a community that says, this is our leader. This is who we follow. We seek to belong to a different king and to be a different people. It's the sort of community where we seek to live by different values. The kind of values that seek to lift up the poor and oppressed. The kind of values that seek to operate in justice and righteousness. The kind of values that knows that we're a mess, but that God has done something about that in Jesus so we can be transparent with one another. 
It's the kind of community that seeks to know God and have all that he is fill all the parts of our lives. That's the invitation of Christmas. It's to see a king, to see his kingdom, and to join his people. And the way you do that is simply by trusting in him, that he died for your sins and risen again, and then surrendering your life to follow him, to let your life be marked by his kingdom, to come under his reign. And when you do that, it changes everything because you find the life and the world that your heart is screaming out for. You see, the good news of Christmas is Jesus is the promised king. The question, though, is will you follow him? And we want to invite you to do that tonight, to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to follow him and experience the kingdom that he brings. There's no magic word you have to say. There's no simple act. It's just an act of surrender and submission to the King of Kings and Lords of Lords. And you can do that anytime in your own heart, in your own way. But let me pray for us. And then we're going to spend some time together just worshiping this King. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.